Hello and welcome to We Don't Talk About the Weather, political discussion that from the outside may look like screaming and crying. I'm Adam and this is Hugh. Hello. And we're here to talk news and politics. Yeah. Um, mm. There's a little disclaimer before we start this episode. Like, after last week's episode, we had someone turn up in our mentions to wonder why we don't like the Labour Party and don't know what they were listening to before. But maybe we oh, haven't yeah. been clear enough. Maybe, you know, if you're coming to the podcast recently and you haven't heard us go on and on about the worthlessness of the Labour Party, um, just to make it clear, political parties are not social clubs. They're an instrument. They're a thing to use to get positive things happen, the things that you would like to see happen. If it's not going to do that, and there's no chance of it doing that, then you should not support it. Join a working men's club or the masons or i thought you were about to say a workers party there for a moment and i was like ah, good fucking luck <laughs> but yeah but yeah yeah that was a that was a weird incident um we don't really get much we don't really get much kickback um i think the only kickback the only like feedback we ever really got that was completely negative because we're not like that big or anything the only negative feedback we ever got was literally from a spiked oh yeah when, uh, when, because a spiked journalist <laughs> when we did a thing because, about like, living we're about a podcast our... with a few thousand listeners and so naturally he has to respond was it i can't when we did our thing on yeah um living marxism and it was the on spike the network marxism, yeah. and then within seconds half the um the half the humanities department at the university of kent <laughs> start having distinct <laughs> opinions on our tiny podcast ah <laughs> uh, spiked you're so good <laughs> but yeah, you know, I've, I've, I don't know. It felt like this. I don't know the person uh, who who did it. I don't know if I think they followed us on Twitter. But um, yeah, was was not happy about us uh, practicing student politics by rejecting the Labour Party. And I'll just say, I've been through this already. Like, I've, <laughs> there's nothing you can say to me about the 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 utility of having the Labour Party as a thing that it hasn't already occurred to me and I haven't That's already... It. Yeah, we, we had this argument through. with people in 2001, in 2005, yep. and in 2010, 2015. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's not a new thing. No, um, not at all. You want, to, you want to stay in, good luck to you, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's like, it was, a, it was a, the, the main thing that got me was like, oh, shit, maybe we just haven't been clear enough, so I just wanted to get that out there. <laughs> yeah, it was a very, a very confusing episode. Yeah. <laughs> But um, okay, so before we go into our part two of the amazing story of beautiful Robert Maxwell, and I'm glad that you know I I used my powers to get Gillane arrested to yeah, improve the downloads. <laughs> well, the thing is, we wouldn't normally know how to pronounce her name because we don't get invited to Westin parties like That's some of true. the more successful podcasts out there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure oh, <laughs> that, that little girl I some... just full of Brit- British left podcasts. <laughs> Before we go into Robert Maxwell, um, article this week and looking at where are they now from the last election. Um, it's an article, um, an interview with Chucker and Muna, and a little, oh. a little where are they now for Chucker and Muna and Luciana Berger because they've both gone to the same place. I was just thinking that I wanted to know what they were up to. <laughs> Former MP Chucker Amuna is to join the communications company Edelman as executive director and head of environmental, social and governance consultancy, uh-huh. drawing a line under his turbulent political career. 
the former front bencher. <laughs> Turbulent. Yeah, Turbulent. The former yeah, front bencher, mm-hmm, once touted mm-hmm. as a future Labour Party leader by himself, will be advising mm-hmm. the capital markets and financial services arms of Edelman on topics such as audit, embedding ESG factors into decision making. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, sure, sure. Whereas in politics you do the theoretical side, I wanted to roll my sleeves up and get involved at the coalface. Mr. Ramuna told the Financial Times. Yeah, bearing in mind, this is the the coalface. This is a PR company. Um, What a piece of shit. No, imagine if you were like, okay, you are Chucker Ramuna, you've been a member of Labour Party for a while. Yeah. You've, um, you know, you've been an MP, and like, while you may have been a piece of shit. Yeah. um, The people who worked for you. Yeah. And the people who you were around, and the people who you spent you know, the last five or so years with. You just, like, wave it off. It's all theoretical. All yeah. those constituency meetings. Like, also, don't get me wrong, I'm the first person to claim that constituency meetings are a terrible way <laughs> of MPs dealing with their constituencies. Mm. But, like, that wasn't nothing. Also, <laughs> if, people who if being there. an MP is theoretical, what <laughs> is policy? What is political theory? If, you know, being in the House of Commons is just being theoretically involved in politics... I mean, maybe he he might be leaking a, a certain amount of truth, but what that's so it, it's just so um, drawing a line under something and may finally making some money. Mm, but, that's um, what's theoretical. It's, it's theoretical because he's not he wasn't making as much money as he is now. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's an expert. I'm a capitalist, but we need a different model for capitalism. Now, important thing there, capitalist. It does mean something that word, mm-hmm. and he isn't a capitalist. He doesn't, you know, live off the the excess labour of his people that he hires tired. Yeah. You know what I mean? He doesn't yeah. he doesn't take capital and invest it into a factory and then live off the profits. What he means he doesn't do what that. He means He's a rude. He He's a ideolo- fan of capitalism. He is, he is ideologically aligned. But yes, yeah. a fan of capitalism. Yeah. Big fan. A rube. I met capitalism once, very down to earth. Very funny. Very funny. Yeah. Um, well, Mr. Amuna is one of the many high-profile appointments that recently created ESG divisions at UK banks and consultancy groups. The coronavirus pandemic and the protests that followed the police the, the protests that followed the police killing of George Floyd have forced companies to put sustainability, resilience, and diversity at the heart of their recovery plans. Mr. Amuna, a forty-one-year-old former oh. corporate employment solicitor, believes the trend isn't just a fad. We're not in the business of helping people greenwash. This isn't just an aesthetic thing. It's got substance. <laughs> He's working for a PR company. The financial argument is getting louder. The ESG consciousness, ESG conscious companies, which take more of a long-term view and prepare for these types of big systemic risks, are just much better placed. And I think that's been borne out by the crisis. Um, he supports um, Rishi Sunak's three billion pound energy policy. He thinks that. <laughs> Um, Big fan. Yeah. It was always my intention to return to the private sector at some point. I was never going to stay in the House of Commons for decades, Mr. Booter <laughs> said. No, of course he wasn't. Um, I always wanted to leave. Awesome. <laughs> Inside, actually, awesome. I'm laughing. Um, <laughs> um, actually, I, I'm, uh, I'm going to spend much more time on the important things. Yeah. <laughs> I just felt really, um, really, really crowded in. Really, mm-hmm. I really felt like I couldn't blossom until I got this really high paying job at a PR company. Mr. Booter said that the competent opposition had been lacking over the last five years, so good scrutiny has been vital, and the next role will be to spell out social democratic vision, and that has barely begun. That's on Keir Starmer's um, performance as leader of the Labour Party. I'm not going to be... It's asked if he was going to join. He was going to be backing Mr Starmer at the next election. I'm not going to be changing parties again. I've done plenty of that in my time. Oh, oh, oh. 
it's just oh. it's just a it is just a joke it's just yep. a career isn't it just a, um, a particular kind of career move like working for an ngo yep hugh taggart edelman's uk general manager of corporate affairs said in a time of such profound change we couldn't have found a better person than chucker to spearhead our esg offer and advise our clients chucker is a deep and analytical thinker a passionate campaign and a passionate campaigner for a fairer society. <laughs> Fucking bullshit. And he will now be applying this deep and analytical thought to whoever pays the most. Yeah. And, you know, just to give you an idea, because, you know, um, Chucker and Luciana Berger, you know, they both left the Labour Party for, you know, very principled reasons. They left very principled <laughs> reasons. And now the company they're working for, um, just a couple of their highlights. Um, they set up uh, in in the two thousands. They created a front group called the Working Families for Walmart, which was pretending to be a grassroots organisation that was talking about how everyone was really happy to work for Walmart. It was entirely astroturfed, and they got caught out for it. Um, yep. They were they tried to put a positive spin on the building of um, the coal power station at Kings North. They tried to put a positive PR spin on the Keystone Pipeline. In Canada, oh boy, um, they were trying to put a positive spin on the News Corp phone hacking scandal for News Corp. Um, mm. They were hired by the Russian government. Um, oh, here, um, they were hired to help influence the U.S. opinion on a massive court verdict involving oil giant Yukos. <laughs> you know, just generally, Ala- just it's like the Alaskan one, isn't it? I think it might be, but you know, it's all like think, yeah. you know, just just really principled things. Because that's what I just. How are you going to greenwash this? Mm-hmm. Like, what are you like? Oh, and here's a final one. Um, Edelman supported private prison company Geo Group and helped in quote laundering the reputation of private U.S. concentration camps in July 2019. Oh, um, <laughs> good, solid social democratic politics. Uh, sensible. Back to the. This is why, like, traditional Labour like, voters care about that shit this is why like (laughs) it's so um it's so weird the way that terminology has grown up in this particular micro era of describing these people as centrists because yeah frankly they're not really centrists Mm -hmm. they're incredible extremists Mm -hmm. if you if you look at the things that they're willing to support the kind of ideas that they're willing to go for and the kind of problems they're they're able to to hand wave mm-hmm. as having no no consequence to them mm-hmm. like all this time all this time it was like oh yeah well chuck is going to go into a you know a cushy pr job after the election mm-hmm. if he ever needs to and it's like no it's absolutely accurate mm-hmm. it's it's i hate i hate how everything turns out right because we're <laughs> super negative yeah and we're super like <laughs> depressed in this particular apocalypse and we're always right. I hate it. I hate it so much. Stop being right. <laughs> it's ama- it is amazing how um, the discourse has become so... Well, maybe it's always been like this. But like sen- people who describe themselves as like centre-ground, sensible, middle-ground people and how extreme mm. their views are. It's like this week, um, James O'Brien decided, I think, apropos of nothing, to wade into trans stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And he thought his fair, reasonable centre ground argument was that people with penises shouldn't be allowed in to go into women's but women's changing areas um, or toilets, which is an incredibly actually conservative view. Yeah, like it, it's they, a really they, outdated. 
and like but they but they've got so they've been in charge for so long on their long slow shift to the right or maybe they always were and it's just noticing it more it's 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 not a it's not necessarily a a shift to the right it's a it's a an accommodation with things that cannot be accommodated hmm. you know that kind of that kind of um like trans exclusionary kind of attitude yeah um puts you in a any particular box of people of things you are willing to um put up with it's simply that they have never been tested in this way and the reason why so many of them are moving is because they're purely adapting to the things they see in front of them without kind of any notion of a larger morality a larger like compassion and kindness Mm. have never been part of their their lexicon of their of their relationship to politics it's always been it's always talked about in terms of efficiency and it, it, it i mean it comes out of like yeah the blairite thing of we're going to do this better than the old stuffy efficient inefficient tories mm. and so they make like their their lionization is of efficiency without any actual kindness unless it's to their friends who are getting called out on twitter mm-hmm. you know like yeah. you saw that like that that letter that like uh, the open letter that got published everywhere for some fucking reason oh, yeah, yeah. of, um, Oh, we're in, it's an endless cycle of that. It's basically the latest chapter in the endless cycle of debate is essential to a free society. And we just happen to be the ones who get paid for debating. Yeah. Um, and it's just this endless, like cycle of things that ultimately boil down to don't you dare threaten my class position. Yeah, don't you dare come close to it. Mm-hmm. And we got close with making them angry. Making them angry isn't enough, but we got close to them actually losing their minds. And what's I guess what's been surprising about since maybe December has been the fact that they haven't pivoted back. No. They've, they've just they've just gone full in. Yeah. There's no like they're not considering things based on a moral position. They're considering things based on their position to the thing. Mm-hmm. It's entirely conditional, reactive, and they're the ones with all the voices, so obviously they're they're allowed to engineer some kind of consensus sensibility that is by any by any means Chucker going to defend concentration camps <laughs> and oil pipelines across indigenous land is extreme, mm-hmm. but it won't ever be seen like that because there's never his relation to that is never is always mediated through all of this kind of class positioning. Mm. It's yeah. I hate, I hate it. I hate being right, and <laughs> you, you hate, you hate seeing it and screaming and not, not being heard. Maybe, and even when you are heard, it being refracted through this kind of PR bullshit. Maybe next week, whichever one, I, whichever person I find, what they've been doing since the election, it will be something nice. But you know, oh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn this week was laying a wreath at the uh, monument to the International Brigades. That's nice. God, he can't get enough of wreath laying, can he? No, he just loves it. Lay, just laying loves wreaths, laying to, um, wreaths to foreign soldiers going to fight in faraway lands. Um, <laughs> he just can't help himself. It's like he it's, just loves. It's, he just loves wreaths. You would have thought he would have been put off by now. It's a thing, actually, that um, when like last week when I was um, looking at what's her name, Smith. Is it Smith? Angela Smith. Yeah, and I think Jeremy Corbyn was like, I don't. Know, I think he was like handing out food parcels or something like that. And it just keeps on coming back to that. All these people who said that he was the worst piece of shit imaginable and the worst person involved in British politics and one of the most dangerous men in the country. And now they're all going to work for, like, 
either water companies or to defend building a like wiping out indigenous communities to build a pipeline that's going to leak everywhere and he's like taking a picture of a uh, manhole cover or delivering food <laughs> i'm more than a little suspicious of the idea that actually populism in their mind means irrationalism mm-hmm. means not following their particular logic which happens to be tied very closely with um uh what's the mark fisher there capitalist realism mm. mm-hmm. um it's of course of course they go to work for those things that's the logical thing you do in that class position of course they've been they've been trained for it there's all kinds of uh like headhunting firms and things like that out there telling them to do it every single piece of advertising and even non-advertising now branding on on instagram is about maximizing your individual potential mm. and going out and making connections and being a player and a businessman and of course it of course they regard him as fundamentally regard to corbyn as fundamentally irrational which is basically the same as being an animal Hmm. and it's i don't know it's got to be beaten but fuck knows how we do it so we're back with uh part two of our discussion of story of robert maxwell yeah. Uh, last time, we covered Robert Maxwell's story from his peasant origins, peasant origins, in Czechoslovakia, to being a millionaire MP. Uh, but when we had just left him, he'd lost control of his company, lost his MP seat, and his first attempt to foist himself on the public had been a colossal failure. And he turned the gas um, off. Too. And he had turned the gas and the electricity off. That's one of my favourite things. <laughs> Uh, Maxwell hadn't given up. I mean, you should have seen that by now. Maybe you haven't got that by now. He just would not the kind of person to take an I loathe you and want you gone for an answer. <laughs> so control of Pergamon, uh, the company he had set up in 1947, had not entirely slipped out of his grasp. Um, he actually existed in an uneasy stalemate with Leesco, who was the company he had tried to merge with mm-hmm. before the various reports about his business dealings had come out. He was still very much enmeshed in Pergamon's operation, uh, as they had retained all of the journal publishing rights um, to his private companies. So his private companies that he still owned still had contracts with Pergamon. He sued the Department of Trade and Industry over the report that had branded him not a proper person to run a company. And while there was no winning as such, um, he did manage to gain the uh, ability to um, the legal right to respond to a government report before it's published Uh, this was i think we covered that last week it was called like maxwellization Mm -hmm. um so after four years of lease co and maxwell co-ownership uh pergamon was on the bank was on the verge of bankruptcy its shares were worth around 10p each four years earlier maxwell and his advisors had said they were worth 185p a share although that was inflated um the directors of pergamon came under increasing pressure to let maxwell on the board an array of scientists who Maxwell had benefited and city's financiers rallied around him and kept pressure on Lease Co. to allow Maxwell to resume his previous position. By January 1974, Maxwell had finally won, Lease Co. selling their stake in Pergamon for just over £600,000, a paltry return on their original £9 million investment. Jesus. The judgment of the courts and of the DTI uh, from four, four years previously were starting to be somewhat challenged. Um, some of the prejudice faced by Maxwell had been regarded by a lot of people as crossing over into uh, distasteful. 
What's more, British politics itself had undergone a huge change. A wave of sleaze had hit the establishment politicians Maxwell had wanted to join in the 60s and 70s, and the oil crisis of 1973 and the secondary banking crisis in 1974 had exposed the practices and political proximity of a number of institutions and politicians personally. Uh, this included even um, Jeremy Thorpe and Ted Heath, who were uh, Liberal and Tory party leaders. The stigma of being such a bad apple, uh, of being a financial bandit, wasn't such a large factor as it had been four years earlier. Maxwell bought all of Pergamon's shares and took the company private again. By 1977, the company employed 3,000 personnel and was publishing 1,000 books a year and over 300 journals. Its sales had increased from 7 to 20 million pounds and its profits were up to 3.3 million pounds. Much of this came from Maxwell's re-established contacts within the Soviet Union. During the uh, period Maxwell had been away from Pergamon, some things in his relationship with the Soviet Union had changed. Uh, the, the Union had now signed the International Copyright Convention, meaning he had to deal with authors' rights, and he had competitors for Russia's business um, who had let, they had started to let other companies in to mm. bid for publishing rights. Um, even though he had been bilking even though he had been bilking the Soviet government out of payments for years, according to the head of VAAP, which was the agency set up for Soviet authors' commercial rights, the word came down from, quote, on high to give Maxwell all the book rights and some of the journals. What's more interesting is Pergamon was actually losing money on selling these Soviets', Soviets scientists' books in the West. The golden age of Soviet scientific achievement had started to end, and they simply couldn't sell the books and journals to a Western audience that was pulling ahead scientifically. The reason Maxwell appeared to be essentially subsidizing Soviet propaganda was, again, not out of some ideological commitment, but that Maxwell was receiving funds from the Soviets personally, not through Pergamon. In 1991, confidential papers from the Communist Party revealed that Pergamon was listed as a friendly firm and was owed about half a million pounds. Maxwell was being impaid was being paid in hard currency every time, i.e., you know, hard currency, not yeah. credit. And Maxwell was receiving funds personally, not through, not through Pergamon. In return for this generosity, Maxwell also published the official language biographies of the Soviet leader Brezhnev and other Eastern Bloc leaders. <laughs> uh, there's even a photograph of Brezhnev and Maxwell in Pravda, which uh, appeared in <laughs> public which then presumably went back to publishing satirical cartoons of capitalists that looked exactly <laughs> like Maxwell. Um, well, yeah, because Robert Maxwell by this point is like, this big fat guy in a bow tie. He's a big fat guy in a bow tie with slicked back hair. With slick, slick, slicked back hair. Yeah. yeah, he's just one monocle um, away from being literally that cartoon. Yeah. Um, these biographies that he published were, as you might expect, insipid hagiographies and full of homilies like this from Brezhnev's Pergamon published biography. Visiting a state stock raising farm, he looked over its facilities and spoke to the specialists, the milkmaids and the women who tended the calves, asking about their needs and wishes. He was most attentive to the opinion of the people concerning one or another decision of the party and in turn expounded the party's policies. He was thoroughly acquainted with the life, thoughts, and aspirations of the workers, peasants, and the working intelligentsia. You'd never see that <laughs> well, here. You'd never, never, ever see, you know, yeah. someone like Boris Johnson it, in a high-vis jacket at a factory. I, have a, I, I just have a particular hatred of, of that kind of... It, and it's not, not like... It probably is political, ultimately, but, mm. like, just aesthetically, it kills me hearing that kind of, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Because it, like... 
if you had any socialist spirit, if you had any belief in the socialist project, how are you doing that? How mm. are you like listening to that, like going about your daily life? I just don't know. Oh. Uh, there was another one. Brezhnev was touring farms in Kazakhstan and he says to the farmers, you did the right thing by sowing millet and you should sow more of it in the future. Without millet, we cannot solve our country's cereal problems. <laughs> Brezhnev kneels down, takes the soil. This would take millet. I, I find it very funny, but it's yeah. just... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's galling. It, it, it's it's, the, it's uh... the, the attention to detail, but the washing of any kind of humanity yeah. in it. That's the, that's the real thing. Like, it's a technical manual of a person. Yes. It's awesome. Maxwell's work on Ceausescu's biography, The Dictator of Romania, was even more obsequious and included this transcript of an interview between Maxwell and Ceausescu. Dear Mr. President, you have been holding the highest political and state office in Romania for almost 18 years, a fact for which we warmly congratulate you. What has, in your opinion, made you so popular with the <laughs> Romanians? Your campaign has the momentum of a runaway freight train. Your dictatorship Why has the momentum so of a runaway freight train. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> it's great. Uh, so by 1979, Pergamon had been rebuilt, paid off its debts, and by 1980, turnover had increased to 79 million, while Maxwell's personal fortune was estimated at around 10 million. Most of this came from the stock market, but it's impossible to really trace how his companies were kept afloat. He still had those trusts in Liechtenstein. There was still a, a, quite a bit of untraced cash uh, from his um, pre-Pergamon, pre, uh, pre, uh, pre-exile days. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maxwell began buying shares in the British Printing Corporation, which was a major printing company close to bankruptcy. Ironically, uh, it was close to bankruptcy partially because of the collapse of Maxwell's line and encyclopedias 12 years earlier. (laughs) He bought shares up to the point where he would have to declare his interest in the company and then demanded a seat on the board. The owners had no choice but to give up control of BPC to Maxwell after he promised his plan to save the company involved taking on the unions. The British Printing Corporation was a, a huge company, and in the 50s and 60s, uh, they experienced like a golden period of, glow, of, of growth with the kind of rise of glossy color magazines about mm-hmm. everything, you know, yeah. like the old WH Smith days, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Um, but by the 80s, this had kind of been um, undermined by the rise of television. Yeah. Um, but the union still had a stronger negotiating position after so many years of like largesse basically i don't want to say it's largesse because it's how you should be treated but yeah um it was safety and security for workers but you know um five years before murdoch smashed the whopping printing unions maxwell set to work trying to cancel workers privileges fire a quarter of the staff and reduce wages um one observer said, I watched with fascination how moving from room to room, he gradually played off all the rivalries between the union chapels and then between the chapels and the national organizations. They abused him, but he never lost his temper. He never gave the impression of being under pressure and was always the master of his facts. Above all, he left no one in any doubt with, that without him, they'd all be unemployed. Uh, yeah, he was buoyed with his negotiations by the fact that without his plan, BPC would genuinely go out of business. But the contradictions of Robert Maxwell and the charm genuinely Mm. came out of him in these kind of situations. He would go into a a union meeting. He would stand on a canteen table, address the BPC employees saying, we must make more money. Mm -hmm. He would say, I'm looking for job cuts, but I'll save the rest. And at a plant in Maidenhead, employees gave him a standing ovation, despite the fact that he just told them that most of them were about to lose their jobs. 
What the fuck? Is he magic? Because the ones who stay are guaranteed because you're with Robert Maxwell and he's a genius. Because you're never the one who's going to get made redundant. You're always essential to the operation. Like, I do think, like, union... In, I, I guess now we might not have the same idea about um, about work because yeah. we're always scared that we're going to get, like, made redundant at the stroke of a pen. But back then it was like, well, if you're in that environment where you've had kind of a reasonably, like, safe job for, for 20 years... yeah you don't think that's going to go away. People are always going to need magazines and I'm the only person who knows how to work the flunifera <laughs> and they're not going to get rid of me. Yeah. You know, I think that's how, but obviously the more money that the company makes, the more money I make and the better that's better for the union is the, the way the logic goes. It's, yeah. a, it's, it's flawed logic. I, I won't deny. Yeah. Um, he would take people into his confidence and tell them they were the only ones who could sort this out. And, go around big union officials to speak to sh like shop stewards in this manner. He put out an image of himself as someone who wasn't out to attack the unions and, in fact, would rein in management once he was in control. He would say, I, I come from a farm labouring family, he would tell an interviewer for the bookseller magazine in 1980, and I don't go in for owning yachts or going to big parties. <laughs> Says Keir Starmer. A massive, obvious lie. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it sounds like he could be leader he, of the Labour Party now. Hmm. There's an interesting... He would never have got in. I mean, he barely got into being an MP. Mm -hmm. But he would have been interesting as a leader. I mean... His attitudes now. Well, you know, the attitudes he now. Wouldn't have, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't have lasted. He's too much of a... He's an autocrat. He's a naturally yeah. born autocrat. You know? Okay, he might have been a king. <laughs> I think like setting your sights as low as leader of the Labour Party for someone like Robert Maxwell. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's not like, that's not, that's just like, a, I think an honest estimation of his skills. I think he wanted to actually be a feudal king. <laughs> <laughs> a neat little bonus of Maxwell crushing the unions at the BPC were that the banks were coming around and starting to warm to him. Hmm. Um, so they, the city had turned their backs on him in the previous decade, hmm. but seeing someone who could come in and uh, dislodge such kind of large, powerful, successful unions as they had at BPC, um, the banks suddenly maybe started to think this was a person that they could do business with. Hmm. Um, Maxwell added Watford's Odden Printers uh, to his list of companies and became the largest print company in Europe. The acquisition of the BPC, then renamed to the British Printing and Communications Corporation, marked the end of Maxwell's comeback story and the beginning of his imperial phase. Ooh. Yes. Um, so he's back, um, and he's back bidding for newspapers. Mm -hmm. um, he had a pattern of bidding for uh, a number of newspapers. He tried to move in on the Times in 1980, uh, at the same time he was bidding for BPC, but I think companies considered that as he had a load of capital locked up in the bid, in the BPC bid, he wouldn't have enough capital to own the Times. Mm -hmm. um, he was rejected from that. Maxwell would later tell people he was convinced MI6 had briefed against him as an upstart Jew who could not be trusted to own a piece of their turf. A very familiar story that he would spin out over the next decade or so. Not far uh, off, to be fair. <laughs> um, in nine, April 1984, he bid for the Observer, which I didn't know was at that time owned by Tiny Rowland. Really? Of 
Long Road Frame. If you've ever watched um, the Mayfair set by Adam Curtis, uh, Tiny Roland features in that quite uh, significantly. Mm-hmm. So like an African, a white African, mine, or a white owner of mines in Africa. Yeah. Um, yeah. BPC's share price had soared from 12p to 160p since his takeover. He suddenly found himself with the money and the infrastructure to print and own a newspaper. Uh, so Maxwell moved in on the Mirror in 1984. Uh, he got it for the price of £90 million. He felt he'd got a good deal. He probably did get a good deal. The Mirror building was undervalued in the bid. Uh, itself was probably worth as much as he paid. And there was a very interesting surplus in the pension fund. Hmm. More on that next time. The Mirror was once the most widely read newspaper in the world. Uh, in the 1960s, it was the paper of most working-class people and of students, um, boasting a readership of 14 million in 1964, which was about a quarter of the British population. By the 1980s, however, it was in bad financial straits, and the owners Reed International had sought to float the company on the stock market to, in a way to water down the power of the print unions. Same story as uh, at BPC, mm. um, although they had admittedly thought they had put in place a plan whereby no one person could come in and buy all the shares. The Mirror was selling about three and a half million copies at that point, with readership probably double that. Um, It was also consistently the only Labour-supporting paper and had garnered a reputation for investigative journalism, with Paul Foote and John Pilger being amongst its writers. Hmm. Maxwell made a solemn pledge that he would not pursue checkbook journalism like The Sun, and that, quote, editors in the group will be free to produce their newspapers without interference with their journalistic skills and judgment. He paid large sums to keep the uh, journalists on board, in particular, former Harold Wilson press secretary Joe Haynes, who at a union meeting said he would have to be dragged through the doors, kicking and screaming to work for a monster like Maxwell, but ended up becoming assistant editor <laughs> and even writing, eventually writing the tycoon's heavily hagiographical autobiography. Um, Even with such a large, prominent purchase, Maxwell applied the same convoluted ownership structure as he did with his other assets. Roy Greenslade, former editor of The Mirror, attested to how Maxwell collected company like other people collect stamps. And for every company he bought, he created two or three more private companies, leading to his untraceable trusts. His printing corporation, BPCC, was owned by Pergamon, which was his original private company. That, in turn was a wholly owned subsidiary of the Pergamon Holding Foundation, a trust based in Liechtenstein, owned on paper by a tax lawyer called Walter Keicher. Maxwell said, I published the mirror. Ownership is a separate issue. I am not in the business of disclosing other people's business. And he refused to disclose who actually owned the Pergamon Holding Foundation. <laughs> oh, he would have been a great king. I refuse to say who actually is king. For all the secrecy around his actual legal ownership of the mirror, um, Maxwell was not shy about using it as his personal vanity print. Unlike the Barclay brothers and Murdoch, who, for all of his fashioning of a particular like newspaper culture around mm-hmm. his right-wing concerns, rarely actively intervenes in the publishing of the, of the Sun or the Times or anything like that. Um, Maxwell was very much a visible presence in his newspapers. Um, he was constantly on the edi- editing floor at the Mirror, changing columns, ordering the size of typeface to be used, selecting photographs of himself that he would use to enhance the words. <laughs> Photographers would often be unavailable, um, having been seconded to another part of Maxwell's business, taking pictures of him visiting dignitaries or him on a day out at Oxford United, which he also owned. Um, Murdoch newspapers, as well as Private Eye, referred to the Mirror as the Daily Maxwell. 
At one point, the name Robert Maxwell appeared 231 times in the mirror in three days. Excellent. This did not enhance its sales. Um, <laughs> oh, by 1980, I find that by shocking. 1980- by 1986, uh, sales were down to about 700,000 from an estimated 14 million in 1964. He could have been really successful as the world's leading proprietor of scientific journals. He was making money. He could have steadily built up his fortune, installed his family at a top table. But being a mere rich man, you aren't invited to meet prime ministers. Mm-hmm. A rich man isn't asked to conduct a television interview around his house. Um, but the propriety of the da- proprietor of the Daily Mirror is. Mm-hmm. Um, the Mirror also gave Maxwell the springboard to attack those who had attacked him, a permanent megaphone directly into people's homes. Uh, he rescued the Commonwealth Games from bankruptcy uh, to sp- <laughs> and sponsored their 1986 games. They, they weren't going to go ahead mm-hmm. um, if he hadn't sponsored them. Maxwell was then enraged when nations withdrew their teams to protest Thatcher refusing to impose sanctions on apartheid South Africa. He went on Terry Wogan to say, we at the Daily Mirror will not forget any country which has reneged. We will remind our readers every time there is a news story. We will tell our readers that these people have welched on sharing part of the costs. I don't think they will enjoy that, he said, smiling. <laughs> it's so weird. There's so many indications. And, and the another interesting thing that links back into this idea that Maxwell's been forgotten he went on question time he went on chat shows he had documentaries made about him very little that i can actually find anymore you would oh. think those kind of things would be up on youtube yeah. and i've searched a bit maybe i need to go searching a bit more but i can find a few uh documentaries about him but mm. none none of his tv appearances hmm I mean, it's obviously copyrighted, so it's not going to be kind of yeah. in the public domain, as it were. But yeah, it's it's an odd one. So Maxwell took control of the Mirror on the 12th of July, 1984, which also so happened to be the fourth month of the miners' strike. The Mirror was a traditionally northern-focused, union-supporting paper, um, and so it held kind of a, a fairly standard line on the strike, supporting the, the, the strikers. Um, as with dealing with the unions when he bought PPC, um, in the summer and autumn of 1984, Maxwell sought to personally involve himself in the strike. He arranged a meeting with Arthur Scargill, president of the National Union of Mine Workers in Sheffield. According to John Pilger, who accompanied Maxwell on the trip, Scargill uh, presented his issues with police violence, with the fate of the coal industry if the Tories got their way, but Maxwell lectured him on the miners' responsibility to the nation. He told them he feared a breakdown in law and order and civilised values. Banging the table, Maxwell shouted, You're bringing the bloody revolution to the streets of Britain. You are doing nothing less than attacking the sovereignty of the nation. Maxwell left the meeting with one of his vendettas brewing. Furious that Scargill had not helped improve, he could ease worker relations as he had done at his other companies. Um, He would use the mirror to pursue this vendetta, very much so. Uh, he started by, when he got back from the meeting, he spiked a commentary from the Mirror industrial editor reporting that Thatcher had wanted to take on the miners more directly during the 74 strike under Fuck, Ted Heath. I remember when they used to have industrial editors. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. They had numerous concept, industrial yeah. editors. It's such a weird concept. They had, like, a desk. Yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? Um, Maxwell spiked this uh, this headline, changing the headline from digging into a vendetta to the enemy within. The editor was only informed that this had changed once the issue had gone to press, and Maxwell claimed the changes were because the piece looked too grey with too many words. (laughs) Um, Obviously, 
that is designed to maybe spike a, a story that is not so pleasant to Margaret mm. Thatcher as it looks as if she's holding a grudge from when Heath was embarrassed by the miners in, in 74, yeah. if that wasn't clear. Uh, Maxwell decided to turn the mirror's firepower on the miners directly. He commissioned a hit piece on the NUM's leadership called The Pig-Headed Identical Twins, referring to Arthur Scargill and uh, David Heathfield. Um, Pilger also informed him that they had evidence that the coal board and the government weren't telling the truth about their dealings with the NUM. Maxwell responded that the story was a fake. He continued to involve himself directly in negotiations, particularly during the TUC conference in Brighton. Um, um, Ian McGregor, head of the National Coal Board during the strike, would late, in later years claimed he had a deal with Maxwell to turn down criticism of the NCB in exchange for trying to come to terms with the strikers. It is also just a coincidence that Peter Walker, the energy secretary at the time, would become the chairman of the Maxwell Communications Corporation six years later. Um, a lot of the attacks on the strike became very focused on Scargill, who Maxwell had blamed for denying him the opportunity to become a national hero by settling the strike. Um, Maxwell sent a letter in November 1984 to Margaret Thatcher urging her not to settle on Scargill's terms and that he was an evil man who was doing damage to the trade unions, his members and his industry. Um, then by coincidence, again by coincidence, the Mirror reported that the NUM were ready to settle along with details of the NCB's final offer, an exclusive that was entirely made up. Indeed, the journalist, Terry Pattinson, whose name was on the byline, didn't even know he had written it. <laughs> uh, Joe Haynes, now assistant editor, dutifully wrote an editorial proclaiming a vote for sanity on a deal that didn't exist. Oh, my God. Um, Maxwell pursued his vendetta personally, uh, even after the strike was over. In 1990... The Mirror ran a series of stories that, at the height of the miners' strike, Scargill and General Secretary Peter Heathfield had paid off their mortgages with money donated by Gaddafi's Libya. There was one major problem with the story. Uh, neither Scargill nor Heathfield at the time had mortgages. <laughs> Scargill denied the NUM ever received money from Libya, and editor Roy Glinslade apologised for the story in 2002, calling it untrue. Um, obviously, some of this kind of negative coverage... Um, around the minor strike was caused by his personal personal feelings about the uh, Arthur Scargill. Yeah. Um, it may also have been that he thought he was doing the Labour Party a favour. Um, Kinnock wasn't exactly a fan of the strike or Scargill, uh, and Maxwell may have been reckoning that he could draw closer to the potential future Prime Minister by giving him support. Um, and, you know, support that most of the Labour movement wouldn't. Uh, he backed up he backed this up with donations to the Labour Party, once dramatically pledging £31,000 from the floor of conference. <laughs> um, Was he holding he had, like Maxwell a big a... wad of money? <laughs> Presumably. £31,000 for the... <laughs> for the nice party there in red. <laughs> Although apparently like there is a raffle. story... <laughs> there is a story about um, him going to Kinnock before, I think it might have been the 87 election. Yeah, 87 election. Um, and asking what he could uh, do. And mm. uh, he said, oh, you know, I can provide cars, I can provide money, I can provide, like, phone bank operators, things like that. Um, and one of the people said, um, oh, how about your helicopter? Mm. And he got all silent and walked out. <laughs> and they explained it. It's like, no, you've got to wait for him to offer you the helicopter. You can't <laughs> ask for it because it's his toy to dispense. <laughs> oh, fuck's sake. <laughs> 
Um, Maxwell actually had a reasonably good relationship with Neil Kinnock, although Glenis Kinnock couldn't stand him. And Maxwell would briefly employ both Kinnock children at his paper, The European, Hmm. Um, for actually getting kind of Labour's position into the papers, Kinnock preferred dealing with the Mirror's political political editor, who at that time was Alistair Campbell, huh. who was at the Mirror from 82 to 87. Um, but Maxwell and Kinnock both shared something akin to embarrassment of being in the orbit of the of the strike at all. And that maybe leads uh, to what Peter Wright, who was ex-assistant director of MI5, uh, described as, often the people in the left-wing press seemed more happy than the others to be friends of ours. That was a quote from someone from MI5. <laughs> um, quite what Maxwell thought his socialist politics were is kind of a mystery to me. Yeah, it seems that it does it was, seem really fascinating what he thought his politics were. It feels like King stuff. Yeah, there is an essential difference between me, the mm. e, like the I, mm-hmm. the ego, and there is a difference to everyone else. You are all appendages, but if you do right by me, I will look after you. He doesn't see himself i'm not a psychologist i can't tell you i mean although from his experiences so far you can probably see where where maybe some of that uh distancing uh, comes from but um yeah they were in his mind these were values to be ascribed to other people and not for his own conduct he would constantly repeat i only want to be of service to my fellow man Hmm. um and you know the thatcher era was supposed to be the new dawn the era of the entrepreneur this was when all of the kind of detritus of the welfare state would be rejected and all those old kind of buccaneering capitalists would be welcomed back in to provide this new this new era with energy and you know swift decision making in the name yeah. of the nation that was certainly how figures like maxwell and james goldsmith saw it um maybe to a certain extent his thing with the miners maybe he felt the sting of the establishment rejecting him i think in maxwell's mind it was probably quite easy to lump judges, bankers and aristocracies who turned on him in the 70s with um, the voters who had, had voted him out, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you could see the unions as their, their obstacles to progress as much as the old guard were for him in the financial arena. The yeah. unions are, the, are a block on progress. And it, he doesn't seem to have mattered that, I mean, obviously he took his own progress most seriously, but what seems to have irritated him is the block on the general theory of progress. Yeah. The general idea of progress was that the that, that he felt unions were. Mm-hmm. Um, nevertheless, uh, yep, he was fully installed as uh, owner and proprietor of the Daily Mirror. The foyer of the Mirror Building in Holborn had four front pages displayed to depict the sweep of 20th century history. One was of victory in World War II, one was of the Kennedy assassination, one was of the miners' strike, and one front page covered two-thirds by an image of Robert Maxwell. Fantastic. In purchasing the Mirror, Maxwell had finally achieved the status to match his cash flow, and he would not be shy about using it. Maxwell had a few more scores to settle in and around his erstwhile political party, um, uh, Private Eye published a story alleging that Maxwell had paid Neil Kinnock's travel expenses for a trip to Africa in the unspoken manner of these things with hopes of buying himself a peerage. The source for this um, was a rising star, a rising young star in the Labour Party. Indeed, he was a protege of uh, Neil Kinnock, went around his house, you know, was really, was really tipped for big things under a Kinnock regime. And it's a familiar maybe a quite an unexpected name in 2020. Uh, the source for this private eye story was one gorgeous George Galloway. Huh. Yeah. 
um, Maxwell sued Private Eye, um, putting the full force of his usual performance in the witness box. Um, he brought up the vendetta he thought Private Eye had against him, <laughs> that they kept running stories on him and his wife, and he even wept as he spoke <laughs> about the murder of his family in Auschwitz. My God! Yeah. Uh, Galloway didn't appear in court because he was a protected source, obviously, although it became obvious through the proceedings to both Kinnock and Maxwell that it was Galloway who leaked, who had leaked the uh, Probably because Galloway boasted about it because he can't help himself. (laughs) (laughs) Kinnock never spoke to Galloway again and his rise in the party faltered. There is an alternate history where Galloway continues under Kinnock's patronage and I don't know where that goes. (laughs) (laughs) No, we're Um, good. But Maxwell, yeah... Maxwell was the more persistent adversary. No, actually, coming back to Galloway, I think Galloway's purely fashioned by his um, his 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 particular experiences of always being opposed by certain mm. by like the mainstream. I think fashioned him in a particular direction in a way that it took Ken longer to because Ken was like okay, he was like I know he was lambasted as like extreme left or whatever, but he was still pretty mainstream. Mm. Yeah. He was even more mainstream when he actually became London mayor after yeah. um, was it 2000. Yeah. You know, like he was head of the London council and he ran it like a bureaucracy. Like, I don't, yeah. I think like, I think constant news reports about you like that fashions you to think of yourself in a certain way. And I think that's probably what Galloway. So Are you Galloway saying we're living in like, Galloway's darkest timeline? I'm saying we're all living in Galloway's darkest timeline. <laughs> what I'm saying is that in every generation, there's a Galloway and a Corbyn. <laughs> one goes one way, one goes the other. <laughs> uh, Maxwell was by far the more persistent adversary. Um, he pursued Galloway through the mirror. Uh, according to David Seymour, a mirror group leader writer, mirror journalists pursued stories on Galloway, uh, even inside the Scottish Labour Party. Uh, the line came down that Galloway was responsible for the uh, private eye story and that they wanted anything they could get on him. A number of stories uh, appeared accusing him of financial irregularities and of living a life of luxury while he worked for the War on Wants campaign. This was a year before he was elected as an MP. Hmm. Um, Maxwell's journalists offered money to his girlfriend, posed as tax inspectors, and took photos of his, took photos of his bedroom from a nearby tree. In October 1986, a front-page story by Alastair Campbell accused him of spending £20,000 in expenses from the campaign. Later, investigations cleared Galloway of any wrongdoing. An interesting element of this kind of opposition to Galloway was Galloway's consistent support for the Palestinian cause. Mm -hmm. When Maxwell appeared on Question Time, can you imagine Rupert Murdoch going on Question Time? Yeah. The Barclay brothers. Yeah. Swapping seats. Yeah. I don't know. Are they twins? I don't know. know. (laughs) It's crazy. They're two toddlers in a long trench coat. Yeah, it's another era. Mm. Um, When Maxwell appeared on Question Time, he greeted Galloway's introduction with, ah, Galloway, the PLO man. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Calling Galloway a terrorist and a fellow traveller of the IRA and of Yasser Arafat and whatever was as standard tabloid practice then as it is now. Yeah. Um, But Maxwell's support and involvement with Israel would leap to a new level in the 80s. Allegedly. (laughs) I'm going to be very clear about that, allegedly. (laughs) Um, So Robert Maxwell uh, was in his 60s in the early 80s. Um, He 
obviously he, he became more nostalgic as he got older, reflecting on his family, uh, his failure to save them from the Holocaust and his own Jewish identity. He had been making more trips to Israel, where he was received as a, a conquering hero, a homecoming hero, the scrappy boy from nowhere who made it big. Maxwell had established close relations with the country's leading uh, politicians. Skillfully, he would avoid showing favor to either Yitzhak, Yitzhak Shamir of Likud or Shimon Perez of Labour, uh, the opposing leaders of the two main parties. Uh, he would give them equal contributions, identical contributions to both parties to avoid showing favor. Maxwell's enthusiasm um, and I just love it when people, big... when people donate like that. It's like, oh, look, I don't want to show favor. I'm just in favor of politics in general. Yeah, I just, I just I definitely want don't want politics to, to be on the side of. I definitely don't want whoever wins to owe me one. <laughs> yeah, um, Maxwell's enthusiasm and energy was invigorating for a country that still felt themselves to be an outsider, isolated and hated by everyone, including their supposed allies. Uh, you should. It's worth remembering that. Probably up until the late 80s, um, Western support for Israel was not as unquestioned as it is today. Mm -hmm. Obviously, um, the British and American governments were supportive of um, Israel, but they also had long-standing oil interests with Arab countries, which meant always walking a delicate line between support for Israel and appeasing Arab anger over the treatment of Palestinians. Aside from the Palestinians and the wars and land grabs, um, Israeli intelligence in particular had been getting Western backs up. Um, they, Mossad had been using uh, sovereign territory of their allies, allies nations um, to stage kidnappings, assassinations, and had even been spying on their own allies for technical secrets. Um, they had an entire intelligence agency called LAKEM, which was the Bureau of Scientific Relations, to procure scientific and technical intelligence abroad from both open and covert sources, particularly from the United States. Hmm. Um, Ehud Olmert, then Minister of Health, who became a close friend of Maxwell, said, here was a foreigner saying we were wonderful and he could open doors for us anywhere. Maxwell invested $100 million, an enormous amount, in chemical, publishing and high-tech industries in Israel. He also appeared at conferences in Europe and America, encouraging others in the Jewish diaspora to invest in Israel. Stickers began appearing across Israeli businesses bearing the slogan, Maxwell, buy me. And Maxwell would always say to conferences, I've made money in Israel and so can you. Those closer to him witnessed uh, another deeper reason for his increased investment with Israel. In his Jerusalem office, Tommy Lapid, his office manager, watched Maxwell stare out over the city and saw tears roll from his eyes. I feel close to my parents here, he whispered. I've tried all the world and I'm only happy here with you. Hmm. Now, Maxwell was an emotional man. He also knew how to use his emotional states to get what he wanted. And we've just seen him crying over his family in the Holocaust in the middle of a defamation trial, yeah. um, which, you you know, he, he was definitely not averse to using his own emotions and his own story to uh, get his own way. But Israel was seen to act as, for him as an emotional refuge, a country that wouldn't turn him away because he felt that maybe they share had shared blood or shared culture but there was some there was some bonding uh principle between him and and that land yeah. essentially israel was like another proxy family mm -hmm. again we talked last week about how he'd set up his own family in an attempt to replace the one he'd lost and i think there's a sense that israel would have been 
a a suitable kind of rebuilding of that family yeah uh later on in our story uh, probably next week now um we towards the end of maxwell's life when he was contemplating final defeat he told his pilot to prepare two flight options london and jerusalem it's not hard to believe that london was his press continue and jerusalem was his game over yeah um so for certain, we know Maxwell met Shimon Peres uh, shortly after the latter's election in 1984. There he was re- introduced to a man called Nahum Admonai, who was the head of Mossad at the time. And Maxwell was given a guided tour of its headquarters. He would also be, uh, Maxwell would also make friends with um, the prime minister after that, Yitzhak Shamir. Um, when they'd first met, Shamir had co- accompanied Maxwell for two days, touring the religious and cultural sites of Israel. At the Wailing Wall, Maxwell, close to tears, stood before the remaining relic of the Second Temple, turned to his host and said, I will do all I can to protect this. Uh, He also employed Yitzhak Shamir's son, who was the managing director of the Maxwell-owned firm Cytex Corporation in Tel Aviv. Um, So we can't really, you might guess where we're getting in, what kind of territory we're getting into here. Um, The persistent rumor, conspiracy theory, weird fact that uh, Maxwell was, if not a Mossad agent, then worked very closely with Mossad. Um, the specific claim that Maxwell was a Mossad agent was released in Seymour Hersh's book, The Samson Option, in 1991. Uh, the same claims have been made subsequently by two rogue-slash-retired uh, Mossad agents, Victor Ostrovsky and Ari ben Menashe. Uh Gordon Thomas, one of the foremost historians of Mossad, and Dylan Thomas's cousin, which is Yeah, I remember weird. you telling me about that. Yeah, Just, very weird. Um, yeah. Along with uh, the writer Martin Dillon, wrote Maxwell, Israel's super spy, based on numerous testimony, including Ostrovsky, Ben Menashe, Rafi Eitan, former deputy head of Mossad, and numerous others in the Maxwell, MI6, and Mossad organizations. <laughs> um, Tom Bauer, in his biography of Maxwell, rubbishes the idea of Maxwell being involved with Mossad or assisting the Israeli state in, let's say, extra-legal affairs. Um, <laughs> I have gone back and forth on this quite a lot, and honestly, there's not really anything I can tell you about the kind of the actual truth of these things. I can only present things that have been gone into by reasonably reliable people, mm-hmm. um, based on testimony from people who were almost certainly definitely there. Yeah. Um, how those authors have chosen into a story, have chosen to weave it into a story, I really don't know. Um, but again, I will remind of what happened, you know, what we were talking about last week, which was no one just becomes an agent and then immediately follows every single order that they're doing. Maxwell was a businessman. Everything yeah. he would have done would have been for his own benefit. Yeah, exactly. Even, uh, for, first, even, even for something like Israel, you know? Yeah, like, uh, yeah, first and foremost, he, he likes to make money. Quite when Maxwell started working more closely with Mossad is unknown. It's not like you sign a contract for it. And there was no doubt he did really good business out of his connections with the Israeli state, um, both above and below board. Um, Maxwell had started to take more risks, and he was generally coming to the attention of intelligence services. Now, this might have been, he was definitely getting into riskier territory, mm-hmm. Um dealing with arms and uh, dealing with states uh, in the Eastern Bloc. But there's also a sense of the kind of ground shifting under him. Um, the detente of the 70s was over, and states were putting far more emphasis on like destabilizing other states and winning the Cold War, essentially, mm-hmm. funding yeah. proxy conflicts. Um, it was a more difficult world to be an intermediary between East and West. And aside from that, there were a lot more tertiary states 
um, to do business with. You know, the the rising of the um, the non-aligned world, yeah. as you might have called it in the seventies. Um, so, for example, uh, in 1982, David Spedding, deputy director of MI6, became aware that the Iraqi government was looking for a translator of several back issues of specialist scientific magazines, such as the Journal of Nuclear Energy, the Journal of Nuclear Physics, <laughs> and the Journal of Inorganic Nuclear Chemistry. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> um, I'm just, a, these could I'm just an average up-and-coming state. I'm just looking for, a, just, you know, just for a bit of, like, light, like light, light, nighttime reading, a bit of something to read while I'm on the <laughs> toilet. I would like to read the big book on nuclear bomb, please. <laughs> Obviously, these could be these books could be used to help Iraqi scientists build a nuclear weapons. Uh, all these titles were owned by Maxwell as part of his enormous publishing empire. Uh, so it turned out he had sold the issues to Iraq for seventy thousand pounds. <laughs> Again, not that's selling books. Yeah. Um, he's not. I, I don't. Was he asked to do that? No. But at some point, if you're a lone businessman selling nuclear secrets to a prescribed <laughs> country, which, by the way, at the time Iraq wasn't. Yeah. Um, the British government were actually selling them arms. Um, aren't you already somewhat in the clandestine world? Yeah. You're already on that side of the line. You don't need to be an agent for that. It's, yeah. Um, so one of the main figures in um, revealing kind of Maxwell, Maxwell's um, alleged Mossad history was a man called Ari Ben Manash. He was the child of Iraqi Jews who had settled in Tehran and he joined Israel's military intelligence directorate in 1977. He alleges that he played a role in the October Surprise, which was the um, Reagan presidential campaign, essentially bribing the Iranian government with arms and spare parts to postpone releasing American hostages held in Tehran until after the election against Jimmy Carter to maximize his embarrassment of being yeah. unable to bring Americans home. Um, Ben Menashe provided information to media outlets that eventually led to the exposure of the Iran-Contra scandal, explaining later that he was ordered to leak this at the request of Yitzhak Shamir to embarrass his political rival, Shimon Peres. <laughs> Basically the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, Israel had played a key role in Iran-Contra, um, as they were obviously closer, um, and it was in their interest to prolong the Iran-Iraq war as it, was, it would be weakening two powerful regional rivals. They provided a stream of arms sales to both states, circumventing official U.S. embargoes on the trading of arms to Iran. Uh, ben Manash was arrested in 1989, accused of trying to sell military aircraft to Iran using faked end-user certificates. While languishing in prison, awaiting trial, he phoned Robert Maxwell and Nick Davies, the Mirror's foreign affairs editor. You may remember Nick Davies from last episode where he was having an affair with the same woman as Maxwell and oh, when yeah. Maxwell found out, he got furious and bugged her phone. Yep. Yeah. Um, ben Menashe phoned these two to provide an alibi saying he was an author writing a book, which Maxwell was publishing. Mm -hmm. He had legitimately contacted um, the two 18 months prior to his arrest to discuss a tell-all book where he would reveal how Washington had sold chemical weapons to Iraq and how Ronald Reagan had helped supply arms to Iran in return for the October surprise. Uh, ben Menashe asked for a $750,000 down payment. He was asked to prepare a proposal and two weeks later he was told neither Davies nor Maxwell were interested. Um, but that said, he still thought that this alibi might be the key to him being released from arms trading. I yeah. don't know how realistic that is. Um, now, if Maxwell was surprised by Nick Davies, uh, 
he's also that Nick Davies, not a relation to the other Nick Davies, the Flat Earth News guy. Okay. Who's a, another journalist, did a book called Flat Earth News. It's not that guy, different guy. Um, if Maxwell was surprised by Nick Davies sleeping with one of his women, he would have been astounded by the fact that, according to Ben Menashe, he had recruited Nick Davies at Mossad's behest as a business partner in the international arms firm Aura Limited to facilitate the pipeline of arms to Iran. <laughs> this was sort of confirmed by uh, Nick Davies' ex-wife as the firm operated out of Nick Davies' London home <laughs> from 1983. Um, Nick Davies' wife was Janet Fielding. She played one of Doctor Who's companions. Um <laughs> One fax from Davies' home uh, from the 29th of December 1984 to uh, Petah Tikva, a town in Israel, read, Regarding request for quotation, we would appreciate the best quotation and delivery times and condition for new original Soviet-made Bakalite AK-47 magazines. Several thousand of the above <laughs> magazines are required by our company for marketing in the United States to private users. Yours faithfully, you'll love this, Nicholas Davis. <laughs> not Davies, because if the spelling is incorrect, he can't be detected. <laughs> it's coming from his home. That's so smart. That's brilliant. Um, I love that. Maxwell Maxwell didn't know. Uh, Maxwell had a relationship. I am looking for 400 semi-automatic cheeseburgers. <laughs> Maxwell did have a pre-existing relationship with Ben Menashe, apparently but he didn't know about Davies' relationship with him until 1985 when he heard a bug's recording of Davies on the phone with him. <laughs> Ordering magazines. Oh, do you, want to know, do, you want to, do you want something else really, really great? Okay. Also, Nick Davies was an MI6 source. This was confirmed by Colin Wallace, a former intelligence officer. Fantastic. <laughs> Dave, Nick Davies would also be a large part of something called the Venunu Affair, which uh, Maxwell was involved with and was mentioned in the uh, the Samson option, the uh, Seymour Hirsch book. Mm -hmm. um, so if you don't know, um, Mordecai Venunu mm -hmm. uh, had been made redundant from Israel's Demona Research Facility in November 1985. Uh, his file noted at the time that he had left-wing and pro-Arab beliefs. Mordecai Venunu had contacted a Colombian journalist uh, called Oscar Guerrero, claiming Israel had constructed at least 100 nuclear devices of varying power and had hidden this from the world. Venunu had, after talking to Guerrero, Venunu had approached the Sunday Times. They flew him to London to interview him. Guerrero, fearing he would be cut out of any story if it hit the big papers first, followed Venunu to London to try and find him. Unable to locate him, Guerrero took the documents Venunu had given him, which included photos of the layout of one of the nuclear reactors, to the Sunday Mirror, where Nick Davies um, got hold of them and arranged for Guerrero to be interviewed by a quote-unquote hot American journalist. This American journalist turned out to be Ari Ben Menashe, the Mossad agent, <laughs> um, to check up on what Venunu had told him. Yeah. Uh, photos were sent back to Tel Aviv, where they caused a huge panic. While they had known about Venunu leaking um, nuclear secrets from the Australian Intelligence Bureau before he had met Guerrero, um, the photos he had given him had also shown the manufacturer of nuclear landmines. What the fuck? Which had been deployed along the Golan Heights border with Syria. So those exist, apparently. Um, you know, like suitcase bombs? Yeah. Um, and they had deployed them along the Golan Heights, which was a huge escalation in an area that did not need any more escalation. Um, 
The Sunday Times, realising Israel would try to discredit Vanunu's story, had hidden him at a hotel in central London while they interviewed him. Sorry, the I'm Sunday still, like, mi- nuclear yeah. landmines. Yeah. They're like the kind yeah. of thing that you get in something like Command and Conquer. Use one to go, well, I can't use that. It took out half my own base. Yeah, I can't... I mean, there's nothing... You're not protect. I suppose you're not protecting land with landmines anyway, are you? Because you've got to dig them up before you can use the land. Yeah, but... you're making it so no one can God. Yeah. Um, the Sunday Mirror published an article with a large photograph of Vanunu calling him and Guerrero liars and the nu- Israeli nuclear capability a hoax. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Mossad mobilized to find him, and hotels received calls asking for a man of Vanunu's description from the photograph in the Sunday Mirror, claiming to be relatives checking on him. Um, it's unclear. Uh, the Gordon Thomas account seems to suggest that they were uh, mobilized Mossad cells, um, which, you know, they did have in Britain. Um, but it also maybe suggests that it was mirror journalists who were asked to kind of find what hotel Vanunu was staying in. Yeah. Um, Vanunu was eventually found, persuaded to come to Rome, where he was ambushed by agents, injected with a paralyzing drug and abducted back to Israel. He was tried, convicted and sentenced to 18 years in solitary confinement. They had only confirmed that he had evidence once the Mirror, Maxwell, Nick Davies and Ari Ben Menashe had confirmed that this was the case. Wow. So another allegation um, from Gordon Thomas is on something called the Promise uh, Affair. Okay. I'm giving all these. I'm giving all these stories the name affair. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's a different time. That's so, what, like, literally all these things were like affair. Yeah, I should write a spy, a spy series just called the some the XXX affair. Yeah. Um, so the story of promise is incredibly murky. Um, it's P R O M I S, known as the Prosecutor's Management Information System. Okay. Uh, it was a piece of software developed by an NSA researcher named William Hamilton. It was basically a people tracking technology designed to be used by prosecutors to monitor case records. Um, The US government uh, helped fund the creation of Promise um, and had been licensed to use the software on condition that it did not modify, distribute or create derivative versions of it. The government, however, did not stick to this agreement. there were a number of like relational database software programs, but this particular one was really, really good. Um, William Hamilton uh, summed up the problem with uh, most databases, um, saying there's a Department of Justice database, an Attorney General's database, and an IRS database. Every arm of government has its own database, but none of them can share information. That makes tracking offenders almost always difficult and building cases against them a long and bureaucratic task. What Promise did, it checked all of them. Mm-hmm. It integrated with every database. Um, it could find people who had assumed false names by finding another detail of their life. It could work out when they checked into airports, hotels, when they used credit cards, when they used passports. It was uh, ahead of its time. Yeah. Um, the surveillance and tracking potential of Promise was obviously huge. Uh, so William Hamilton resigned and set up his own company, Inslaw, to work on the software. <clears throat> uh as it turns out, the Justice Department and the NSA had taken the work Hamilton had done while a state employee and um, engineered their own version of it. They had also built in a trap door, which meant that as well as the database being able to share information for the customer, the NSA would also be able to huh. see the information that the customer was doing. So um, the NSA sold promise to banking houses um, in 1982. Um that allowed the agency to conduct real-time electronic surveillance of money flows to terrorist organizations, foreign intelligence services, and other perceived threats to U.S. national interests. 
Mm. Um, at the time, Inns Law offered to lease their version of Promise, their enhanced version of Promise, to the Justice Department. However, they turned it; they did turn it down. But the Justice Department did send a visitor to Inns Law to test the software. The visitor was named Dr. Orr and was an Israeli public prosecutor. He was not an Israeli public prosecutor. His real name was Rafi Aitan, and he was an infamous direct deputy director of operations for Mossad. Um, now, Gordon Thomas and Martin Dillon's book suggests that Mossad did a similar thing to the NSA. Mossad took a copy of the Promise database software um, acquired during a covert visit to the US and installed a back door that could be used to give Israeli intelligence access to the information entered. Their objectives mainly would be to monitor movements of Palestinian organizations and Arab intelligence services. Mossad had access to the movements, movements of Yasser Arafat, a list of false names and passports he would travel under, um, all kinds of things. Mm. Um, around 1984, um, an Israeli computer company called Degem began to sell this trapdoor promise software around the world. Degem was owned by Robert Maxwell. Degem had already been used by Mossad to move their agents, um, posing as company salesmen through Central, South, Af uh, South Africa, and South America. But now they had a product to sell. They actually turned to the great salesman, to Robert Maxwell. So Maxwell, like a traveling salesman, would move through countries giving presentations to intelligence services, police, and heads of state. Um, the CIA and NSA both had their own royalty-free trapdoor versions of Promise. None were as successful at selling it as the Mossad version that Maxwell sold. His first client was Robert Mugabe, president of Zimbabwe, who used the software to track dissidents. From there, Maxwell flew to Pretoria, where he sold the software to the South African apartheid regime. Within days of implementing the software, miners' leaders who were planning a strike were tracked through Promise by their identity passes. All were imprisoned without trial on the day Maxwell left the country. Wow. Maxwell moved on through South America to Guatemala, where he personally demonstrated how the software could be used to round up opponents of the regime, that the regime would then use to round up 20,000 government opponents using the software. He also sold, the security, sold to the security forces of Colombia and Nicaragua, both mm. obviously right-wing uh, narco states. Mm -hmm. everywhere, he sold, um, gave, everywhere he sold to, he gave Mossad an exact picture of suspects and actions of the state intelligence service. According to Gordon Thomas, in countries where the um, where Promise tracked uh, political dissidents, Mossad knew that the dissidents were being arrested before their own families did. Um, it was sold to MI6, who used it to track Jerry Adams and members of the IRA. Um, overall, Maxwell sold Promise to the intelligence agencies of New Zealand, Australia, Thailand, Turkey, Belgium, Poland, East Germany, East Germany of all places, mm. Egypt. Bulgaria, Nicaragua, Colombia, Guatemala, South Africa, Zimbabwe, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and the KGB. Wow. <laughs> all of these people's, all of these intelligence agency secrets, whenever they entered anything into this database to find someone, Mossad knew. <laughs> he even sold it to China, which at that time was still one of the most closed societies on Earth. And Mossad was probably the first intelligence agency on Earth to gain insight about the direction China was heading in. <laughs> Maxwell's biggest coup was selling promise to the Sardia facility, which was next to Los Alamos, one of the most secure nuclear research installations in the US. <laughs> to gain access to Sardia, Maxwell had essentially bought a senator, uh, John Tower, paying him a £200,000 salary for a meeting with defence high-ups. 
Mossad now had access not only to the movements of Palestinian Arab groups and intelligence services as they had wanted, but the success of Maxwell's personal marketing meant promise could be used to monitor Soviet and friendly nations' submarine movements, missile tests, and even the nuclear facilities of the United States. Wow. Maxwell sold the software to Credit Suisse. (laughs) which Mossad used to track Israeli billionaires who were depositing money overseas, as well as covert CIA and mafia accounts with the firm. (laughs) Um, He also sold it to BCCI, um, who were, I think they collapsed in like 1988, and were a huge CIA slush fund bank. Um, Mossad could see how groups used special codes, trusted bankers, and rapidly moving funds around to hide amounts in various banks across the world, keeping money never keeping money in the same place for too long, just like Maxwell did. <laughs> he took a commission from every sale of promise <laughs> and apparently made around $500 million wow. from the sale of promise. And got a lot the of NSA, killed. Yeah. Uh, the NSA and CIA had shopped around their trapdoor version of promise, but none of it that never made anywhere near as much money. Uh, yeah. their, their front companies never, never made anywhere near as much money as Maxwell. A little postscript. Uh, In October 2001, it was uncovered that the Russians had had a spy named Robert Hansen in the FBI for uh, a decade, and that he had sold a version of Trapdoor Promise to Simeon Mogilevich, who had sold it on to Osama bin Laden. Bin Laden had acquired an updated version of Promise and and had been using it to monitor intelligence agencies and launder money. It forced the FBI, MI5, and Germany's BND to stop using Promise, fearing bin Laden had had access to their hard drives. God. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, this increased involvement with the clandestine world um, would have increased Maxwell's paranoia. I'm speaking hypothetically here, uh, but also based on things Maxwell did. Uh, he started to install listening devices into Maxwell House uh, and all around his kind of offices. Um, and he hired a f- yeah, um, and he hired a former Met chief superintendent, John Pole, to collect the tapes and bring them to his penthouse. Then, when he couldn't sleep, he would listen to them or look at reports from his private detectives on his women or his enemies. <laughs> That's a king. That's yeah. an actual king. Yeah. Um, Uh, Ironically, according to Gordon Thomas, Mossad actually had a cell working within Maxwell House. It was reasonably easy to get them in. Maxwell regarded anyone who stayed too long as knowing too much, so he made sure there was a very high turnover of staff. Um, That's different to how he used to be. You know what I mean? Like before when he had um, the loyalty Um, of his workers and all that kind of stuff. The interesting thing is there are a few people who he kept on for a long time, and to them he, he ended up getting a lot of loyalty. But he was very changeable. He was very mercurial. Yeah. So he would he would go in, and somebody had asked for a raise, and he would fire them. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. It yeah. was it, again the helicopter thing. It's for him to give out. Yeah, exactly. It's not for you to ask. Yeah. All right. So he increasingly started to mask his movements, even from his own staff and partners, and even his family. Uh, he would charter a plane to France, only to land and immediately fly to some restricted air zone in Hungary or uh, East Germany or Poland or somewhere. On one yacht holiday with his family, Maxwell came to blows with the captain over his constant heading changes. Maxwell challenged the captain over the accuracy of his headings and even brought his own compass, which he would compare to the yacht's onboard compass. Fantastic. The captain became especially agitated when Maxwell demanded that they sail towards a Bulgarian military port. <laughs> Uh, 
not the best idea in the middle of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> what? Sailing but, your pleasure yacht into a Bulgarian <laughs> military port? It gets better. Uh, Maxwell told the captain to sail the yacht directly up to a Russian cruiser, despite warnings from the vessel itself that they would be fired upon. He, or, he, <laughs> he piloted the yacht up to the Russian vessel, ordered that he be taken to see the Bulgarian president. <laughs> One radio called Shaw, and he was immediately escorted to, t- to see Todor Zhivkov, the long-term Bulgarian president. Um, Maxwell had been a close friend, whatever that meant, to Maxwell, of the Bulgarian president Todor Zhivkov. He had published the president's fawning autobiography and in return had been presented with the highest honour the country could bestow on a foreigner. Um, his relationship with Bulgaria is fascinating, um, it seems to have been a real focus of his after a certain point. Um, he, he he really started to visit it quite a lot. He was made a big deal of in Sofia. There were parades and he was granted access to everywhere, had the best hotels. <clears throat> um, Maxwell planned to invest in Bulgaria, opening new plants and flooding the country with desperately needed foreign capital. Uh, it was alleged he was also there to uh, request this purchase of arms. Uh, armaments, as Bulgaria was the Eastern Bloc's most advanced weapons manufacturer. Um, he also brought a goodwill copy of Promise Software for its secret service. <laughs> nice of him. Um, but Maxwell's plans for Bulgaria were so much bigger than just arms sales and widespread <laughs> espionage, and involved a scheme of such baffling grandiosity, it's scarcely believable. So, again, this is from Gordon Thomas. These are from interviews and documents that he has he has received over the years. I kind of trust Gordon Thomas. He was one of the first people to find out um, that the Suez um, invasion was happening yeah. like back in the 50s. He generally seems to be reliable, a reliable investigative journalist. Uh-huh. Um, so this is this is from him. In Bulgaria, Maxwell met Andrei Lukanov, Minister of Foreign Economic Affairs, and who would eventually be Bulgarian Prime Minister post-1990. He also met Onyan Doinov, the Vice President of the State Economic Council. They were there to bring to life something called the NEVER Project that would essentially give Maxwell carte blanche to run Bulgaria's economy. Um, the Bulgarian Secret Service were renowned for, was renowned for its efficiency and foreign espionage operations. Uh, it's alleged they were behind the assassination of dissident Georgi Markov with a ricin pellet fired from an umbrella in 1978 and had been accused of being behind the attempt on John Paul II's life in 1981. They had sleeper cells all over the world and were famed for their uh, efficiency. At the time... There was a long list of IT and other technologies that Western companies were forbidden from selling to the Eastern Bloc. Essentially, the NEVER project was an agreement that the Bulgarian Secret Service, with all of its uh, expertise and all of its sleeper cells in other countries, would steal Western technologies, bring them to Bulgaria, where it would be re-engineered by Maxwell companies, and then resold to other Eastern Bloc countries. The profits would go solely to Maxwell, Doinov, and Lukanov. Maxwell would handle the money end, for which he would receive a handsome 25% uh, commission. The document the three signed at the time um, was unearthed by Gordon Thomas. Uh, One page contains a long list of technologies that Western companies were forbidden to sell to Soviet bloc countries, essentially a shopping list. Mm -hmm. Um, Another page gives this declaration for Maxwell. 
This document is to give Mr. Robert Maxwell the following opportunity we believe he can provide for a second market. To achieve that, he will be allowed to operate freely in this country with no restriction and with the full support of every government department, including the Dadsavna Sigurnost, which was the uh, Bulgarian Secret Service. Bulgarian politicians were essentially giving Maxwell a f- an entirely free card to turn Bulgaria into an arm of the Maxwell Empire. <laughs> um, Maxwell proposed that he set up his own bank in Bulgaria, buy one of their newspapers and invest in their film industry, and that he would service Bulgaria's foreign debt, personally. <laughs> um, he set up a range of companies under the Maxwell umbrella, the Central and East European Partnership. He set up Multi-Art for handling the met- metallurgical industry. Stanka Dimitrov would sell pharmaceutical software. Sophia Insurance would make computers. Balkan Films would provide stolen tech from Hollywood for the Bulgarian film industry. Maxwell had turned this Eastern Bloc country into the money laundering and theft capital of the world. <laughs> he was essentially the first post-Soviet oligarch before the Soviet Union fell. Jesus. Um, what's more, the companies Maxwell founded would eventually um, come to kind of conglomerate after the fall of communism and come to be known as Multigroup, which was the largest private business in Bulgaria after the Soviet Union fell, and allegedly its biggest organized criminal enterprise. The network of companies, slush funds, and tax havens Maxwell set up for his Bulgarian enterprise would become the model for everyone from the triads, the Russian mafia, Colombian cartels, all would organize their money and their assets (laughs) along the line. Maxwell set down with his Bulgarian adventure. Um, part of this uh, agreement, Maxwell had also offered to service Bulgaria's foreign debt, which he would do by obtaining a controlling interest in Bulgaria's cooperative bank. Once Maxwell had control of the bank, he would use it to launder his own money, forgetting <laughs> about the servicing of Bulgaria's debt. Because it was deposited in funds that Maxwell controlled, Maxwell could draw on these funds at will. He was able to take out millions of dollars from Bulgaria, one of the most ruthlessly, one of the most ruthless police states in the world, with barely a hint of having to go to the country's government to ask. He barely even had to use a withdrawal slip. <laughs> $200 million of Bulgaria's monetary reserves was invested in shares and bonds with Maxwell's <laughs> own investment bank. Maxwell's Bulgarian banks will also be being used by the uh, rising organized crime syndicates across the Warsaw Pact. Bulgaria's cooperative bank, the bank Maxwell had bought a share in, had been used for years by the major Russian mafia family, the Rising Sun, to launder money. With the Soviet Union beginning to crumble, groups like the Rising Sun were preparing to move in on the on what was left. Simeon Mogilevich, head of the Rising Sun, one of Russia's uh, largest crime families, was one and was once on the FBI's top ten most wanted list, um, had made his money by scamming fellow Jews. He was Jewish. Um, And he made money by scamming fellow Jews who wanted to move to Israel, taking their assets and promising to sell them on and wire them the money before not not (laughs) Not doing doing that. Yeah, Yeah, they would move to Israel. He would take their assets and sell them for himself. Um, He had expanded into money laundering, contract killings and drug trafficking. Um, and it established 50 legitimate companies across the world to launder his money. Um, he earned about $40 billion a year. At Mogilevich's request and following a, a broad outline requested to Maxwell by Shimon Peres, the Israeli president, um, Maxwell secured Mogilevich an Israeli passport. Um, Maxwell's Bulgarian banks were also the first step in Saddam Hussein's laundering of almost $40 billion of Iraq oil money, money under sanctions. 
this, this is getting a little more serious. Yeah. Um, so eventually, after the fall of communism, Lukanov and a group of party members ousted Todor Zhivkov as president in 1988 and began the transition to a capitalist economy. He contacted Maxwell to help set up companies for the new capitalist class of Bulgaria. Party officials and senior intelligence officers were to form the nucleus of Bulgaria's new democratic capitalist class. Maxwell told the new government in Sofia that he wanted them to apply for an IMF loan while he went about reducing their debts. He wasn't reducing their debts. Uh, in 1990, he took John Tower, remember the senator who he had uh, used to grant access to the US's nuclear facilities. Yeah. Uh, he took him to Sofia. Uh, he's now an ex-senator, and he wanted to install him as uh, a member of the board of the Central and Eastern European Partnership. Um, Tower agreed to talk with President Bush to give Bulgaria a priority for IMF loans for ex-communist countries. The loan would come to $132 million, of which Maxwell calculated he would be able to divert some $86 billion million for his own use. Remember, he had control over their foreign debt yeah. and stakes in a number of Bulgarian banks. If the government receives it, they've got to keep the money somewhere, and some of it would come to him. Um, as it turns out, this didn't actually happen. The loan process would take too long um, to help to, to, to help out what by then had become a very perilous financial position for Maxwell. But um, so yeah, uh, back to 1990 and Ari Ben Um After being in prison, he was eventually found not guilty of arms trafficking. And after he was released from prison, and approached Seymour Hirsch, the investigative journalist, um, about. All of the stories he had accumulated as a Mossad agent and also his relationship with um, Robert Maxwell and Maxwell's relationship with Mossad. Hirsch contacted Nick Davies through an ORA phone number, which mm -hmm. was uh, him and Ben Menashe's arms company. And Davies said that Ben Menashe had only been an informant. Um, Hirsch's book would be called The Samson Option and would detail Israel's nuclear program. But he also added an extra chapter, revealing Maxwell's ties with Mossad, as well as Davies' arms sales from his desk at the Mirror, <laughs> and allegations that it was Davies and Maxwell who had betrayed Mordecai Venunu to Mossad. Um, news of the Samson option had reached Israel. A finished pre-publication copy had found its way into the hands of a New York cell. Um, Maxwell had used John Tower, this ex-senator, to gain access to the highest and deepest reaches of the U.S. state. If it were uncovered that Maxwell had been working on behalf of Mossad, the fallout between the two countries, which uh, clandestinely had been rocky for years, would be catastrophic. What would Maxwell do about the Samson option? Well, he consulted his lawyers, and they told him no UK paper, TV, or radio station would dare repeat the allegations that he had been an agent. They would repair a writ for Faber and Faber, the publishers of the book. They would employ lawyers in every European country to prevent publication. And so they did up to and including spiking the printing of the book in Britain. Uh, it was Maxwell's literal professional life, after all, was being yeah. a printer. One thing he didn't account for was Parliament. On the 22nd of October, who should rise to his feet in the Commons but Maxwell's old friend George Galloway? He <laughs> quoted from eight pages of uh, Seymour Hersh's book... <laughs> Then the Conservative MP, Rupert Allison, the only Tory never to vote for the Maastricht Treaty, he was a spy historian and a writer of spy novels under the pseudonym Nigel West. Hmm. Um, indeed, uh, Allison's access and information in his books was so good, uh, it was considered that there's no way he wasn't well-connected with MI5 and MI6. Um, 
Rupert Allison stood up to finish the reading from Hirsch's book. Um, apparently, some years previously, Maxwell had snubbed Allison over some interview with uh, he was supposed to do with him, and Allison hadn't forgotten. Um, <laughs> um, Maxwell's lawyers tried to sue both of them, but it was no use. They had repeated the allegations in Parliament, and so were immune from libel under parliamentary privilege. Yeah. Uh, they both obtained substantial damages later from the Mirror for its attacks on them. So now every newspaper, TV, and radio station could repeat the story. Admittedly, the Maxwell section of Seymour Hersh's book was only 78 pages long. He had only heard from Ben Menashe towards the end of his draft, and so really had only included the allegations about um, Aura Arms Company, the Iran arms dealing, and Maxwell's relationship with Mossad and Vanunu. Um, it hadn't included anything about Maxwell's links with Promise, Bulgaria, or with the KGB. But it was now public that Maxwell had been dabbling in more than just crafty business practices. Maxwell was getting involved with increasingly dangerous characters outside of the state realms he had been operating in, not just intelligence services, but closer to non-state criminal organizations. Other middlemen at the crossroads of intelligence, arms dealing, and international, international politics, many of whom were known to Maxwell personally, simply seemed to kept, keep dying tragically. Um, Cyrus Hashimi... Uh, was an Iranian arms dealer and an acquaintance of Maxwell. Um, he tipped him off to a, a few companies who were going bankrupt. Um, Hashimi laundered money for terrorist groups, had a hand in Iran-Contra, and um, apparently, allegedly, Maxwell was asked by Mossad to cultivate Hashimi as a contact. Um, he start, uh, Hashimi later on started doing deals for Saddam Hussein's Revolutionary Guards, was arrested by the FBI, and agreed to testify. According to sources, in June 1986, Maxwell invited Hashimi to his penthouse, where he asked him to withdraw his cooperation with U.S. investigators. In July of 1986, a month later, the health-obsessive Hashimi, who regularly jogged and went for twice-yearly checkups with a top private doctor in Geneva, was dead at 45 from accidental brain stem damage due to stroke and leukemia. The death was considered so strange that the serious crime squad investigated. The forensic pathologist concluded it was one of the strangest deaths he had ever investigated. And while the induction of leukemia was an impractical form of homicide, sent tissue samples away to the government germ warfare lab at Porton Down. The results were never made public. <laughs> um... Another of Maxwell's close friends uh, died in mysterious circumstances, Amaram Nir. Um, he was Shimon Perez's former campaign manager, um, involved in, again in Iran-Contra. According to friends, he had a record of George H.W. Bush, then head of the CIA, talking about his involvement in Iran-Contra and was about to give evidence against Oliver North in court. He died in a plane crash in 1988, where he was seen boarding a plane under a pseudonym with a mysterious figure. The plane crashed, and by the time the first rescuer came to the plane, the mysterious figure had gone. An injured survivor of the crash recalls Nia waving to him after the crash, telling her help was on the way. Oh, and afterwards, his widow was burgled, along with all his papers and documents were taken. <laughs> um, then in April 1991, John Tower died, the senator who gave Maxwell access to the nuclear facilities. He died in a plane crash. There was nothing to suggest that Towers crash. At this time, there was nothing to suggest Towers crash was anything but an accident. But the habit of people around him in these particular arenas yeah. dying <laughs> suspiciously all the time must have been playing on his mind. And as we'll see next time, Maxwell had more than enough to be worrying about. That's us for this week. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us at WDTATW underscore podcast. Follow me at BM Bergamo. Follow Hugh at Tanner Smashing. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. I love my country.